grace and peace to you, dear brothers and sisters, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What adjectives would you use to describe the baby Jesus lying in the manger? Go ahead, I'm breaking the wall. You can answer. What adjectives would you use to describe baby Jesus lying in the manger? Okay, serene. Don't be shy. Humble, savior. Lowly. If, if we look at the Christmas carols, there are a lot of descriptors of Jesus. Away in a manger talks about the little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. There are, there are other Christmas carols. Silent Night talks about the holy infant so tender and mild. Oh, Jesus, so sweet. Oh, Jesus, so mild, gentle. Jesus, meek and mild. Sweet newborn babe, how frail and in a manger bed. A lot of these Christmas carols, the, the picture that they paint for us of our Savior Jesus as we celebrate Christmas is this, this perfectly helpless, weak little baby lying in a manger, unable to do anything for himself. And that's accurate, isn't it? That's what every baby is like, especially in those very first days. They are completely helpless. But why do we emphasize those traits about our Savior Jesus as we gather for Christmas? It could be because a tiny, little, fragile baby Jesus is one that all of us, everyone around the world, can gather together and celebrate and say, that's nice, that's lovely, that's sweet doesn't seem much like a fearsome God that we must be held accountable to. Or maybe, maybe the emphasis in our Christmas carols on the fragility and the tenderness of Jesus is because of the fact that Jesus is not just like any other child. Yesterday, Pastor Borman started to introduce us to this passage from Isaiah chapter 9 where Isaiah the prophet gives us some names and he adds some descriptors of this Savior who would come. He says, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called. Last night we looked at Wonderful Counselor. Today we see that next title. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Not tender child, not meek and mild, not fragile little baby, but Mighty God. The majesty and the mystery of Christmas is that swaddled up in cloths and lying in the manger bed is not just a tiny little helpless baby, but our almighty, fearsome God. The same Jesus that we read about in the Christmas story, that Jesus who was helpless against King Herod the Great when he went after the Magi came to kill Jesus, Jesus Helpless relies on his earthly father, Joseph, to secret him and the family away to safety in Egypt. 
that same Jesus is the one who, several decades later, from his throne on high in heaven, would send an angel of heaven down to that King Herod's great or grandson when he failed to glorify God. Jesus sends one of his holy angels to strike him down so that he's eaten from the inside out by worms. Oh, Jesus so meek. Oh, Jesus so mild. Maybe Jesus so mighty. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to ask you another question you get to answer. Where in the Bible do you see the might of God manifested most clearly? And I'm going to take one off the table, the miracles of Jesus. So I'm going to take all those away. But where else do you see the might and majesty of God displayed most clearly in the Old Testament or in the New? Go ahead. Creation. Transfiguration. The transfiguration. Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. An epic showdown. I put a little top ten list together. I had creation and the flood, the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. God coming down to deliver the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the crossing of the Jordan and the destruction of the walls of Jericho. Some of these we got. All the rest of them you guys got. And maybe the resurrection of Jesus. Now I want you to consider what does the might of our mighty God do to you? as you read about and hear and learn about and think about the might of God, what does it do to you? What emotions does it evoke inside of you? Does it elicit fear? Or comfort and joy? I think it really depends on which camp we're in. If we take the flood as a for instance, when the might of God was demonstrated and the waters of the flood came washing down, how you felt about God's might probably depended an awful lot on whether you were inside the ark or outside of it. Those ten plagues that God sent against the Egyptians were remembered very differently by the surviving Egyptians than they were by the Hebrews who were delivered through them. And for that matter, the parting of the Red Sea, too. And whereas with the flood you wanted to be in the ark, when it came to Jericho, you wanted to be on the outside, not on the inside. Depending on where you are with your relationship with mighty God, his might and power hit very differently. When I was a little child, I found incredible comfort in the mighty arms of my dad. Every day when dad would come home from work, I would run to the door and I would jump up into his arms. I missed him so badly. Almost every day. But there were some days when I saw his car pull into the driveway that I would slink off to my bedroom or down to the basement 
and try as hard as I could to make myself scarce. Those were the days where at some point earlier in the day, my mom had said, I'm not going to deal with this right now. You just wait until dad gets home. It was the same dad coming through the door. But where I was at that day, in my relationship with him, made all the difference. That, that might and power where usually I found comfort, now I feared. I think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had only and always known love and compassion and greatness and goodness from their God. But then that day when he came to the garden, it was so very different. Because now they had done the one thing that he had commanded them not to do. Now they had sinned, and so now when he came into the garden, they ran away and hid because they were afraid. And rightly so, because what had God told them? You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden, and if you do eat from it, you will surely die. They had eaten it anyway. They deserved to die. So they hid in fear. For the Israelites, as they stood at the bottom of Mount Sinai, when God came down in fire to deliver the Ten Commandments to them, fire that was accompanied by thunder and lightning, by billows of smoke and earthquakes and the sounding of the trumpets of the Lord, they came to Moses and they said, Moses, you go ahead and go up the mountain and talk to God. And you can come back and tell us what he says, but do not let him talk to us like this anymore, or we will die. And Moses answered them, he said, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning against these commandments. What Adam and Eve and the Israelites there at Sinai were dealing with was the law. The message of the law is simple. Be perfect. Do not sin. And the punishment for sinning is death. So when you and I as sinful people are confronted with God and his might through the lens of the law, the correct emotion to feel is one of fear. Jesus once said to his disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Luther's catechism, each of the Ten Commandments comes with an explanation, and the explanation starts with the phrase, we should fear God so that we do or do not do whatever it is that he is commanding us. The law says to us, know that God, mighty God, is the one who has the power to destroy body and soul forever in hell. Know that. Fear him and do not cross him. And yet we still do. You still do. 
despite all of that power and might of God manifested for you in the scriptures, we still dare to sin against him. Because you are not afraid of him enough. And so he came down. Because of our sins, God came down. But no, not the way that you think he might have come down. Not the way that Adam and Eve thought he was coming down when he came to the garden. They ran away and hid, but what was it that he came to bring them? Was the promise. Promise that he would come down again to set their relationship, to set your relationship with him right once again. As Gabriel announced to Mary and to Joseph, he would come so that he could save his people from their sins. He came not for retribution, but for redemption. He came not to bring down the hammer of the law, but he came to bring you to the gospel. He came not to punish you, but to take your punishment on himself and to destroy your punishment of death itself, to throw down your enemy, the devil. That same sweet little baby wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger is the one that the Apostle John wrote about with these words. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had also been thrown. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Oh, Jesus, so meek. Oh, Jesus, so mild. Oh, Jesus, so mighty. When you are safe within the ark, when you are safe within the home with the blood of the lamb painted over the lintel and the angel of death passes over, when it is the walls of your enemies city fortress that are crashing down, when it is your oppressor who is being plagued, when it is your great enemy who is being hurled into the abyss, the might of our God is still fearsome. But then, friends, it also brings comfort and joy. This is how we learn our Savior's love for us. As we see the way he took his might and power and employed it 
on our behalf. We see, we learn, we know his love, and then that yields our love for him. Those commandments in Luther's catechism, the explanations actually have two verbs at the beginning. We should fear and love God that we carry out those things which he commands. As we look at the law, our response is fear, and rightly so, and we need that still. We need the terror of God's might to frighten our sinful nature, to curb our sinful appetite, so that we say no to the sinful things our sinful heart desires to do. But as we contemplate our Savior God's almighty love for us, that new man, the new woman, whom Christ has given birth to inside of you through water and the word, is able to come to those commandments and see them in a whole new light. As an opportunity now to give thanks to God and to express our love to him for all the great love that he has shown to us. As I prepared this sermon, I thought of a passage from a story that my mother used to read to us when we were little called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's these four children, the Pevensey children in this story, who travel to this magical land. And in that land, the great hero is named Aslan. And as they sit with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're learning about Aslan, and they ask, who is he? Reminded me of our question, what child is this? Mr. Beaver explains that Aslan is the one who is going to come to set all things right. And Susan asks, is, is he a man? <laughs> a man? No, he's not a man, Mr. Beaver says. I tell you, he's the king of all the woods, the king of all creatures. He's, he's a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan says, well, I should like to meet him, but is he safe? Safe? Have you been listening to anything I've been telling you, Mr. Beaver answered? No, he's not safe. But he's good. And he is the king. What child is this that we find wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger? He is mighty God. Is he safe? No. But he is good. And he is the king. For a baby to be found in such mean a state, humble and lowly and little and helpless, isn't that surprising because that's just the way that babies are. But for mighty God, the great lion, to become meek and lowly and little so that we might become great, for him to take on human flesh and, and submit himself to death, even death on a cross, so that he could give us glorious life. Friends, what we find, this child we find in the manger, this is the greatest miracle of all. 
the deepest expression of love that has ever been shown and the finest Christmas gift that you could ever ask for. Merry Christmas. Amen. Please stand. And now may the peace that passes our human understanding guard your hearts and minds and keep you in Christ Jesus until the day he comes again. The Lord be with you. Amen.